Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. This introduction is going to be really, really short because the episode is really, really long this time. Uh, But if you like this content or any other content put out here at the Freed Thinker Podcast, please consider becoming a sponsor. Uh, Visit the blog and click on the Become a Sponsor uh, link that you can find there or become a sponsor on Patreon. If you can't afford to become a sponsor or you just don't want to financially support us, that's fine. Uh, But please head on over to iTunes. Give us a review and some comments. Uh, The better the review, uh, five stars, five stars, uh, that will help us show up higher in search results. All right. With that, let's head on to this this episode where we discuss the Calvin and Servetus affair and ask, why does accurately handling history matter? Enjoy the show. form of argument by anti-Calvinists against the theological system of Calvinism is to attack the man rather than play the ball. Anti-Calvinists like Leighton Flowers, Dave Hunt, Roger Olson, Frank Viola, Steve Anderson, and others will argue either that Calvin was a bad man because of his theological views or that his theology should be rejected because of how bad he was. These arguments can range from the explicit and overt to the backhanded and subtle, but typically there is next to no actual support for any of these claims. It is common in the anti-Calvinistic rhetoric to attempt to malign the person of John Calvin so as to cast aspersions on the so-called Calvinistic theological system itself. In a recent online conversation I had, Calvin was described to me as a as Jihad John, who ran the Christian Taliban in Geneva, and that he was an evil dictator like those of the 20th century, such as Stalin, Mussolini, and Castro. These attacks are not limited to merely hostile rhetoric, but also are expressed through statements misrepresenting history and the life of Calvin himself. Although what becomes painfully obvious is that they know next to nothing of the actual life of Calvin, save for one event in his life, the Servetus Affair. For those of you not familiar with this event, I will go into details as we progress. However, let me make some introductory remarks on this kind of argumentation. When trying to respond to this kind of charge, anti-Calvinists will complain that many Calvinistic scholars will attempt to defend Calvin by saying that he lived in a different time or that he was a man of his day or that this type of harsh treatment was more common belief and practice in Christians in the 16th century. What this does is show that the anti-Calvinist is not only a bad historian, but also does not even understand how objective historiography works. 
for those statements are rather banal explanations about the job of the historian, or at least someone attempting to engage in the tasks of historiography. When we're seeking to engage in objective historiography and come to an accurate understanding of the past, the goal is to leave evaluation to the wayside in the process. We do not seek to evaluate the actions of the person as if they lived in a modern context, but rather seek to understand their own actions within their own historical setting, their own Sitzenleben. The irony is that anti-Calvinists would likely seek to understand a person in their historical context when they want to understand the events in the life of biblical persons like Moses or Abraham. And yet when it comes to Calvin, no such consideration is given. This means that while I can say that I absolutely disagree with Calvin on his views of how to treat heretics and the role of the state in protecting orthodoxy, I also understand that his views are completely in line with what nearly every person of every theological system believed at the time. And it is this that was in due in full measure on their views on the role of the state as the protector of Christendom and the enforcer of both tables of the law. For our historical study, what this means is that Calvin may not have been better than his peers, but it's nearly impossible to say that he was worse or that he is deserving of some kind of special or singular condemnation, or that is what specifically his theological views concerning predestination or salvation that made his civic views any more radicalized than the general beliefs of his time. In fact, other reformers such as Melanchthon, the theological head of the Lutheran Church at the time, Bucer, Bollinger, Farrell, Beza, and others, all emphatically supported the outcome of the Servetus trial. Melanchthon wrote to Calvin about a year after the trial saying, quote, I have read your book in which you clearly refuted the horrid blasphemies of Servetus. To you, the church owes gratitude at the present moment and will owe it to the last, latest posterity. I perfectly assent to your opinion. I affirm also that your magistrates did right in punishing after regular trial this blasphemous man." End quote. Notice here that Melanchthon approves of Calvin's refutation of Servetus's heresies, since Calvin was the expert witness on theology, and affirms that it was in fact the city magistrates who oversaw the trial and the sentencing, not Calvin. We'll see later when we look at the event in detail that Calvin did not even have enough political capital to change the means of execution when he begged for a softer sentence. So why should we think that he had the authority to influence the outcome of the entire trial? Further, we know that Luther and the councils at Wittenberg had approved of numerous death penalties for Anabaptists that they thought were dangerous to German Christianity. Even Zwingli had no objections specifically to the execution for heresy of six Anabaptists in Switzerland during his leadership there. In fact, at the time, there was almost no protestation to the execution of radical heretics like Servetus from any municipality in Europe. We have to remember that this was not a man who simply dis disagreed with Calvin's view of the bondage of the will and the possible tension that it has with the sovereignty of God. Schaff describes Servetus this way, quote, a restless fanatic, a pantheistic pseudo-reformer, and the most audacious and blasphemous heretic of the 16th century, end quote. Bollinger went so far as to say that Satan himself could not speak more blasphemy against the Trinity than Servetus had written. This was a man that was writing and spreading his heresies all over Europe and was wanted by not just nearly every Protestant municipality, but in every Catholic-controlled area as well. 
In fact, while Servetus was awaiting trial in Geneva, a dispatch from the Catholic judges of Vienna, where Servetus had already been burned in effigy, was sent to request that Geneva hand over Servetus so that he could be executed by Rome. Furthermore, we have every indication that Servetus preferred to be tried in Geneva because he would only face the prospect of execution there, rather than brutal torture before execution at the hands of the Vienna Inquisition. <clears throat> An even further irony of those who criticize Calvin for this affair is that Servetus himself appears to think that execution was a fitting end for certain heresies. In his petition from his cell, Servetus argues not that he is innocent of all heresy, but that Calvin, as his theological witness, was incorrect in his interpretation of what he had published. The absurdity of this is that Servetus called for Calvin to be imprisoned with him for the duration of the trial for misrepresenting his views, and that the outcome ought to be that either he be executed for heresy if found guilty, or Calvin be executed for misrepresenting his views if he is found innocent. He writes in his introduction, referring to the false doctrine that he claims not to have taught, quote, Whoever says this does not believe that there is a God, or justice, or resurrection, or Jesus Christ, or Holy Scripture, or anything at all, only that everything is dead, and man and beasts are one and the same thing. If I had said that, and not only said that, but written it for all to see, to defile the world, I would sentence myself to death. For which reason, Monsieurs, I request that my bogus prosecutor be punished according to the lex talionis, and that he be held prisoner, like me, until such time as the case is decided by a ruling for either his death or mine, or some other sentence. And to this end, I hereby bring a charge against him according to the aforementioned lex talionis, and I am willing to die if he is not proven guilty, as much for this as for other things, which I will describe later. I ask you for justice, my lords, justice, 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 end quote. Notice that while Servetus thought that he was blameless for those two specific theological heresies, he not only thought that he should have been executed if he did hold them and would have come to the, to the same punishment if he were to judge over the case, but also appears to have believed that Calvin should be executed if he was simply mistaken in his understanding and misrepresentation of Servetus. Here we have Servetus agreeing that if the council found him guilty of heresy, that he should have been executed. Servetus seems keen to ignore the cornucopia of heresies that he was on trial for and focuses in on two. First, that souls were immortal, uh, sorry, that souls are mortal, and second, that Jesus only received a quarter of his body from the Virgin Mary. These are the doctrines that he references in the quote. Granted, Servetus will later go on to say that, quote, matters of doctrine are not liable to a criminal charge, end quote. But given his prior statements affirming execution for certain heresies and even for theological disputes, it's not clear whether he only thinks that this means that it should not be the church that brings civil charges against them and thus usurp the role of the state in these matters. Or maybe he had a change of heart during his trial. Now, in modern secular Western culture, we may think that such offenses are best left to the church and not to state discipline. But that was not the times that Servetus found himself in, and he admits as much. 
This is relevant historical evidence that goes to the fact that Calvin, as a theological expert witness, should not be given any special scorn that we would not heap on the entire culture of Reformation-era Europe. We need to understand further the period that Servetus was unfortunate enough to find himself in. The Protestants had only recently freed themselves from Rome and were in a theological life-or-death struggle for legitimacy. During this time, the political understanding of nearly every European was that one of the major roles of the civil magistrate was to establish and protect orthodoxy and to stamp out the spread of heresy. Typically, this was done by minor means, such as banning of books. But when some heretic, like Servetus, became a fly in the ointment and remained obstinate or stubbornly chose to continue spreading their views, the state was understood to have the right and the duty to see them expelled or put to death. Religious belief was such an integral part of life that heresy was viewed as something like a deadly rot that would corrode the very fabric of society akin to treason or sedition. The reformers largely broke theologically with Rome on their soteriological views and understanding of the role of the authority of scripture, but there was not a lot of movement on their civic views. This would evolve slowly over centuries, and the relationship of church and state was still a contentious issue that future generations may look back and judge us for. Again, this does not excuse the actions of the early reformers as ethical or even biblical, but it does completely undermine the idea that Calvin's soteriological beliefs had any causal impact on his treatment of heretics. Though we'll see that those like Flower's understanding of the role of Calvin in the Servetus affair in the first place is grossly inadequate. At this point, many anti-Calvinists will attempt to push that Calvin should have objected to the view of the state as the sword of the church and will appeal to a handful of examples of those who held contrary views. The problem with this tactic as a response is that their list of a handful of counterexamples is almost literally all of the people who held to contrary views. Since Constantine, the view of the state as the protector of orthodoxy, even though the power struggles that would erupt uh, around Christendom through nearly a millennium was nearly universal, with the dissenters typically being fringe or hardly known, or even from sects that we would not want to endorse as orthodox either. The reason for this near-unanimous Constantinian view of the role of the state in church affairs is relatively easy to understand, even for us in a time where we don't hold such a view. Consider what is more deadly to orthodoxy and what is more important to society. The life of a heretic or the eternal souls of the children and women and laity of the church. If the state was to stop and punish those who were spreading plague by smearing potentially infected blood on doorknobs, what ought be done with those publicly spreading damnable heresy that could rip whole cities in two? Remember that for nearly a thousand years leading up to the Reformation, and even for a century or so after, whatever denomination the church in town was, so was the denomination of the entire town, and whatever denomination of the princes and kings, so too the nation. We must remember that they did not live in modern, western, pluralistic, secularized nations like we do. They lived at a time when it was a simple feature of their basic worldview that to be a Christian, an orthodox believer, however defined, just was to be a good citizen. 
To rebel against that was not only to rebel against truth, but to rebel against the government. One's theology at the time could literally be an act of treason. Whatever we may think of such a view is irrelevant in understanding the historical setting into which Calvin and Servetus were thrust. Some, like Flowers, will attempt to lump in, quote, most of the Anabaptist believers of the Reformation, end quote, in a group that taught that, quote, even atheists and especially Christians with differing doctrinal beliefs should be shown grace, end quote. Not only is this riotously oversimplified, as we saw that he got his one and only example wrong, and is a completely bald assertion with zero evidence given to support it, but it is also absolutely irrelevant. In that particular article, Flowers is trying to show that Calvin's soteriology, specifically what Flowers thinks is his determinism, led to, or at least is weighted him toward, a brutal outlook upon heretics, or more in his pedestrian semantic relabeling, quote-unquote, dissenters. Not only is this demonstrably false, since his view of the bondage of the will and divine sovereignty had nothing to do with the Servetus affair or his outlook on what should happen to heretics like him, but the beliefs of those with different views than Calvin are rather irrelevant to the claim. This would be akin to saying that Trinitarianism must be false or problematic because other people have other views that lead to other conclusions. Again, I wonder if Flowers would ever allow this kind of barefaced non-sequitur from any of his Calvinistic opponents if we tried using it. Imagine if we tried to blame the semi-Pelagianism and its affirmation of libertarian free will for the crimes of the Spanish Inquisition. Now, I admittedly am curious as to why he leaves out major counterexamples to his claims, such as the Anabaptists involved in the Peasants' Revolt or the horrendously violent and debauched events that occurred in Munster, uh, in the Munster Rebellion under the control of some rather off-putting Anabaptists like Jan van Leiden, Jan Matthias, and Bernard Nipperdaling. Under these free-willing, affirming Anabaptists, countless more people died brutal deaths and an orgy of debauchery spread through their city in their brief one-year tenure than in all of Calvin's long career in Geneva. Would Flowers draw such a straight line from their views on the freedom of the will to the heinous and repulsive actions and oppressive regime in Munster? I doubt it. He would likely want us to be do good historiography and see that it was a far more complex situation than that. This manner of ignoring any and all counterexamples by Flowers and other anti-Calvinists is either intentional and thus dishonest, or else reveals an utter lack of interest in or ability for unbiased research, and a total privation of understanding of the historical period that he is frantically trampling all over. At this point, I'm honestly not sure which is worse or more unsettling. In an online article entitled The Shocking Beliefs of John Calvin, Viola engages in a kind of shotgun attempt to poison the well against Calvin by listing off several quote-unquote statistics concerning the punishment of supposed criminals in Geneva during Calvin's residence there. For those who think I'm overplaying the role of this kind of argument in the arsenal of the anti-Calvinists, this article has actually been removed by Viola with the disclaimer that it will be reworked and added in a forthcoming book about the shocking beliefs of great theologians. However, the import of this list is clearly meant to play on the appearance that Calvin ran Geneva like an iron-fisted dictator and attempts to show that things got bloody and violent for those who stood in opposition to Calvin during his reign of terror there. 
This will therefore allow Viola and others to sneak in the misconstrued Servetus affair through the back door of viewing Calvin as some dictatorial monster, after all. Isn't mistreating Servetus just in line with this evil tyrant's persona? However, this list is wildly problematic for a whole host of reasons, but here I'll only catalog a couple of them. Firstly, consistent with what we saw above about the broader European view of the role of the state in protecting doctrinal and moral purity, most of this list should be not surprising to any student of the historian uh, of this period. On the list is that Calvin's own stepdaughter and son-in-law were found guilty of adultery and executed. While I can find many references to his stepdaughter being caught in adultery, indeed Calvin gravely laments over it in a letter to his friend Veret, I've yet to find any credible source about their punishment being execution. This doesn't mean that the claim of execution is false, just simply that at the time of recording, I have not been able to locate a credible source to corroborate the claim. This alone is problematic for several reasons. As I'll show shortly, this has almost no relevance to Calvin's role in Geneva. We'll see further on in this, in this episode that Calvin was a pastor and was neither a member of the city council nor even a voting citizen in Geneva until just several years before his own death. This means that Calvin had literally no say in what occurred legally in Geneva at the time of his daughter's affair, a very important fact as well when we explore more deeply with regard to the Servetus affair further on. In addition, adultery being a capital offense was nearly universal in Christendom during that period, and Geneva was no way unique. We can put this in perspective by realizing that fornication and adultery were criminal offenses in nearly every state in the U.S. until the mid-20th century. And adultery is still a crime with punishments ranging from $500 to a month in jail in 16 states. More relevant to this uh, series, adultery was only de decriminalized in Switzerland in 1989. To try and place the blame on Calvin's view of the bondage of the will and divine sovereignty, on his views of salvation, or even as a slight on Calvin's character, outside of the rather uncharitable slight that a father be responsible for the behavior of his adult children, is asinine in the highest degree. This is yet another example of unfairly placing a special blame on Calvin, even despite the fact that he had no control over the civil matters or criminal sentencing in Geneva. Another problem with the list is that it's not only vague, but largely uninformative, and even skewed to the point of being possibly intentionally misleading. For example, Viola states that during Calvin's time in Geneva, there were 76 banishments and 139 executions. As an emotional appeal, that may be compelling, but when we stop to consider that the, what those numbers represent, it's hardly so clear. What were the 76 banishments and 139 executions for? What crimes did these people commit to receive these punishments? How many f uh, were for other issues like theft? assault, treason, witchcraft, or even murder? What about the litany of other crimes that in the Reformation era of European Christendom would have led to such sentences that have categorically nothing to do with heretical or heterodox theological beliefs? This list gives us no information in that regard. However, Calvin himself does mention that 38 executions in his writings and 23 of them he gives the justification for them as spreading the plague by witchcraft. Now, we read in his letter to Mysonius of Basel in March 27, 1545, 
that this spread of the plague was accomplished not by some mystical secret ritual, but rather by maliciously smearing blood from infected corpses onto door handles of the homes of Geneva's citizens. This attempt to spread the plague accounts for at least 23 of the executions, and those are only the cases that Calvin mentions. Could there be others in that same vein or something similar? For Viola to throw down these statistics as if they reveal some specifically heinous and oppressive activity due only to Calvin, or as a result of his views on the freedom of the will and determinism as, as Flowers claims, is recklessly misleading. The list also doesn't tell us if these statistics represent an increase from before Calvin arrived in Geneva or a decrease, or if his arrival had no impact whatsoever. We know, for example, that in the case of adultery prior to Calvin's coming to Geneva, the council and the law only required that the woman would have been executed. Calvin preached hard against this and actually did convince the city council that if a charge of adultery could be sustained, that both parties should be equally punished. This had the effect of a substantial decrease in the number of adultery cases that people were willing to levy and to a near complete abolishment of the death penalty for such offenses. Now, this may negatively reflect on the misogynistic double standard of the era, but it does go to show that rather than increasing the severity of Geneva's response to adultery, it actually made it more lax. This makes it hard to trust the list as presented by Flowers and Viola. What these statistics also do not do is compare Geneva to other local municipalities to see if it was divergent from the prevailing civil trend of the day to any statistically significant degree. Simply throwing out these numbers without understanding how misleading and informative they really are reveals more of a bias than a studied understanding of what these statistics even represent. Another major problem is that attempting to criticize Calvinism by degrading Calvin assumes that the historical Calvin has any bearing on the biblical nature or truth of Calvinism. This assumption misunderstands the designation of Calvinism to the system. No Calvinist accepts Calvinism because of some allegiance to the historical John Calvin. That is, they're not aligning themselves with the man Calvin as some kind of leader. This is not an I follow Paul, I follow Apollos sort of issue. Rather, Calvinism came to be so called as a description of the historical debates between various Protestant reformers concerning their views, primarily those that agreed with the theology as systematized by Calvin, the Calvinists, with Luther, the Lutherans, and with Arminius, the Arminians. When someone holds to Calvinism, it is simply because they agree with Calvin's understanding of the scriptures, specifically on soteriological issues, though we often will have disagreements with him on other issues. And to be fair, really the Calvinism that we hold today is the systematization by those who followed after Calvin. Most are perfectly content to call themselves reformed or label the five major doctrines of the systems as the doctrines of grace to avoid the confusion over the name as related to John Calvin. This means that Calvin, like many theologians and church leaders throughout history, could have had numerous theological and other types of problems, ethical failings, and been quite the irascible person, and yet still have systematized the doctrines found in scripture in a manner that is enormously accurate to the Bible with great aid to the church at large. More importantly, I do not think that Calvin to be sinless 
uh, a sinless man never committed grave sins precisely because I'm a Calvinist. That is, it is specifically because of my acceptance of the doctrines of grace with their starting point in the total depravity of man that I am absolutely certain that Calvin was just as fallen as the rest of us. What follows in this article, in this episode, should not be viewed as an apologetic for the man Calvin in toto, but rather only a refutation of false accusations and rather misleading revisionist history surrounding his role in the Servetus affair. This leads naturally to the third reason that this ad hominem strategy fails and will be examined through the bulk of this episode. As mentioned above, the most common incident that the anti-Calvinist strategy seizes onto is the trial and execution of Michael Servetus in Geneva in 1553. Anyone who has been involved in theological debates with ideologically driven anti-Calvinists such as Flowers and Viola will not need to wait long before Servetus is trotted out as an ostensibly clear example of just what a wicked scoundrel Calvin really was. It seems that every attempt to discredit Calvinism by exposing Calvin was almost always centered on denunciations of his supposed role in this specific event. The problem is that the retelling of the trial and the execution of Servetus is more often than not entirely ideologically driven and therefore leads the protester into the worst manner of rank revisionist history that even the most cursory study of the academic literature concerning the episode would render entirely erroneous. Therefore, while I have no desire or intention to create any kind of hagiography of John Calvin, I will present a defense of Calvin in this singular event against the unhistorical and misleading representations of his contribution to it. In order to do this, we will look at several different aspects of the clash between Calvin and Servetus, focusing on the historical setting leading up to the event, Calvin's exact role in the proceedings, as well as the fallout after Servetus's death. Rising Tensions, 1511 to 1553. Often in polemics against Calvin, Servetus is depicted as being a great, free-thinking, morally upright, and an only slightly theologically aberrant victim who fell under the iron-fisted, oppressive ire of Calvin, who loathed dissent and was punished by the machinations of his brutal and puritanical regime in Geneva. Flowers would not even call Servetus a heretic in his article, but rather presented him with the exceedingly banal description as a man who was one of, quote, those who disagreed theologically, end quote, with Calvin, and who was, quote, killed under Calvin's rule in Geneva for disagreement over doctrinal matters, end quote. For Flowers, Servetus was merely a, quote, dissenter, end quote, who was ruthlessly murdered by Calvin, the brutal dictator of Geneva, who could not stand anyone, quote unquote, disagreeing with him on theological matters. Such blackwashed history would be laughable if it were not so tragically misleading to his audience. So why is this caricature an inaccurate presentation of what transpired in Geneva and what really occurred? From what we know of Servetus, he was born sometime around 1511 in the Spanish province of Villanova. He was, by all accounts, a very intelligent but also very prideful and belligerent man with a near compulsive need to win in debates. In fact, many scholars have noted, and we'll see this develop as we progress, 
that Servetus's own pride and failure to read the political climate leading up to and during his trial is likely the single largest factor that led to his execution, and had he simply moderated his tone and played his situation better, he would have likely lived a long and healthy life as many heretics of the time did. We find Servetus' first known major correspondence with any prominent reformer sometime around 1531 while living in Basel. Servetus began corresponding with the Swiss reformer, I'm going to butcher the name, Asa Lampadius, in which he, a 20-year-old, began belittling and reprimanding the elderly reformer for being ignorant, blind, and obtuse. This is the same year that Servetus published his first book, De Trinitate, or The Errors of the Trinity, followed up by, in 1532, with Dialogium de Trinitate, Dialogues on the Trinity. In these works, Servetus mocked the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, saying that God did not have to become a man, but rather a man had to become the Son of God, and that while Christ should be worshipped, he is neither eternal nor God incarnate. He went so far as to say that the doctrine of the Trinity rendered its adherents to be functional atheists and polytheists. These books present a kind of gospel for the Gnostic pantheist and was immediately rejected by nearly every Orthodox theologian in Christendom, Reformed, Catholic, and otherwise. In Basel, Ocilampadius rejected it as rank heresy. Rome attempted to censure and suppress it as a banned book. Bucer did not permit Servetus to flee Basel and come to Strasbourg, even saying from the pulpit, quote, Servetus deserves to be torn to pieces after having his entrails ripped out, end quote. And Zwingli warned that, quote, the false and perverse doctrine of the perverse and detestable Spaniard would upset all our Christian religion. If Christ were not truly eternal God, he could not be our savior, end quote. It should be noted that this manner of rhetoric was more emotive than prescriptive during this period in history. For a paper on the use of violence and insult and rhetoric of the time, with specific comparison of Calvin and Servetus tit-for-tat insults, see Tussaud, Magus versus Falsarius, a duel of insults between Calvin and Servetus in Reformation and Renaissance Review. In 1539, Melanchthon and Luther also rebuked and condemned the theology presented in De Trinitate. After being brought up on charges of heresy in Basel, Servetus wrote a clever retraction of the book to avoid a prison stay and trial. Of the book, he wrote, quote, I retract it all, not because it was false, but only because it was imperfect and written as by a child for children, end quote. The effect of this clearly disingenuous retraction was enough to keep him out of prison, but Servetus likely saw the writing on the wall, and he knew that it would not assuage the authorities in Basel and around Christendom for long, and so he disappeared from the world stage for nearly two decades. Servetus took on the name Michael de Villanueva and pretended to be a faithful and orthodox child of Rome. He studied medicine as a proofreader at a printing house in Lyon. In a rather stunning piece of irony, in 1536, a Protestant named Fuchs published a book attacking Campier, the man who introduced Servetus to medicine, while also defending the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone. His book was burned by a Roman executioner in Paris, a symbolic gesture of what would happen to the author if caught by Roman authorities. Servetus, still posing as Villanueva, wrote a defense of Campier in which he denounced Fuchs 
as a heretic, affirmed the threat of punishment for defending justification by faith, and became at least regionally known as a staunch advocate for Roman orthodoxy against the, quote, heresy of the Protestants. At this point, Servetus, still under the pseudonym Villanueva, took a position teaching mathematics at the Cologne des Lombards. He published numerous volumes during this time on geography and medicine. His passionate belief in the fusion of astrology and medicine, however, landed him in, hot, in the hot seat again with the authorities in 1538. He vehemently attacked physicians who criticized his reliance on astrology to the point that they brought suit against him and even requested he be put to death. Similar to his previous troubles, he escaped a conviction by issuing a retraction and leaving the city, heading now toward Vienna, where he would soon be installed as the private physician of a Vietnamese archbishop, Pierre Palmier. This is yet another ironic turn of events, as Palmier was one of the leading archbishops tasked with handling the quote-unquote heretics, that is, the Protestants, specifically those of Geneva. Servetus even dedicated his book on Ptolemaeus' Ge geography to Palmier and attended Mass regularly, though he appears to have loathed it. During this time, an interesting interaction occurred between Calvin and Servetus that helps to set the stage for later events after his arrival in Geneva. During Servetus' time in Paris, he and Calvin arranged a secret meeting with each other. Calvin still lived in France at this point, and he had yet accepted the call to a pastorate in Geneva. Paris, however, was still a, a dangerous place for him, given that it was a hub of Roman Catholic power, and he was already known for his defense of the Protestant view of justification since publishing Institutio Christiane, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. The reformer decided to meet with Servetus in Paris on the Rue Saint-Antoine, despite the grave risk entering Paris would mean for him. However, Servetus did not show. The interactions between Calvin and Servetus then progressed on a very rocky path. We can observe this in letters written back and forth between the two. In addition, Oeclampadius, Servetus engaged in rather antagonistic letter-writing campaigns with Bucer, Capiton, Melanchthon, Verey, and Calvin. While he had ire for the former reformers, his interactions with Calvin were some of the most frenzied. Scholars have noted that Servetus appeared to view Calvin as something of a trophy that he wanted to win, almost like a game of hunter out to kill a big kill. In 1546, Servetus wrote to Calvin, still posing as Villanueva, to ask him several questions regarding the eternal generation of Christ as the Son, regeneration, and infant baptism. Next to the Trinity, Servetus reviled the doctrine of infant baptism more than all else. Calvin appeared to know that Villanueva was in fact Servetus, but he still sent a well-thought-out six-page response. Servetus then sent Calvin a letter asking him five additional questions, to which Calvin responded, apparently frustrated with the insolent tone of Servetus' letter, with a more sternly worded 19-page response. At that point, Servetus began a letter-writing campaign to Calvin, consisting of dozens of letters that were full of belligerence and insults against both Calvin and Calvin's Trinitarian God, which he called a monstrosity and satanic. Calvin's responses continued to become more severe and harsh, trying to teach Servetus humility, a tone that scholars, even those hostile to Calvin, have noted was not characteristic for Calvin. 
Once Servetus began to not only flood Calvin with letters, but also started sending Calvin copies of his own books with his own edits and insulting remarks in the margin, Calvin put his pen away and determined that he had better ways to use his time and stop even reading what Servetus sent to him. Calvin was not the only one to take this tact when dealing with Servetus. Oecolampetus, sorry, I keep butchering that name, having exhausted himself trying to reason with Servetus as well, wrote to Zwingli concerning his dialogues with the Spaniard, saying that he was, quote, so proud, presumptuous, and quarrelsome that it is all to no purpose, end quote. The harsh tone from Calvin was not the normal way that he engaged people, even heretics. It needs to be noted that Calvin had befriended Socinius, the father of modern Unitarianism, during the Reformation era, because Calvin believed that he noticed an honest mind that operated with integrity, and that there was a genuine seeking after truth within him. Calvin hoped that through friendly and ongoing dialogue with Socinius, that he could be convinced of his error and brought over to the truth. It was in this context that the oft-quoted comment by Calvin to Pharrell is nestled. In 1546, he mentions that Servetus had sent him a nether round of letters and a, quote, long volume of his frenzy, end quote, apparently a lengthy text, much longer than the letters he had already been sending, along with a request to come to Calvin in Geneva to instruct him on, quote, astounding things unheard of until then, end quote. It is here that Calvin wrote, quote, but I do not want to give him my word. For if he comes, and if my authority is worth anything, I will never bear that he go out of here alive. End quote. Now, much ink has been spilt over this statement, probably too much. Considering that Calvin had been banished from Geneva and had only been welcomed back a few years prior, his question about the worth of his authority seems pertinent and, as we'll see shortly, accurate, considering his conflict with the Libertines. It is not just that Calvin did not want to offer safe haven to Servetus, though he clearly did not, but it is also that he had no power to do so. Naffy notes that most scholars recognize all the struggles that Calvin had in Geneva and do not place Calvin gaining any real political influence in Geneva until after 1555, after the Libertines finally lose the election. This means that over two-thirds of Calvin's time in Geneva was marked by banishments, opposition by the ruling party, and very little influence. Even scholars not typically in favor of Calvin recognize that the fiery rhetoric is more telling about the hyperbolic and Im imagery-driven polemics of the 16th century, century, rather than a statement of actual prescriptive desires. S scholars such as Emerton writes, quote, much has been made of this letter as showing the animus with which Calvin entered upon the fateful trial of 1553, but I hardly think too much weight should be laid upon it. Such an expression was quite in the natural order of 16th century controversy and probably reflected nothing more than Calvin's natural horror at opinions that seemed to him nothing short of blasphemous." End quote. One piece of data that should also cause moderation in our view of Calvin's rhetoric is that once Servetus was executed, he was the first person to be executed for heresy during Calvin's time in Geneva. In fact, in the same year as Servetus's affair in 1553, two other heretics stood trial, Robert de Molina for defending prostitution and fornication as acceptable for Christians to engage in, 
and Jean Baudin for saying that Jesus was a phantom and that the Bible was just a human book like any other man-made book. And neither of them were executed. Both were judged by the Petit Concile and banished from Geneva. This may be used to say that Calvin had a unique distaste for Servetus that led to him being more aggressively go after him. While that is doubtful, what this does show at a bare minimum is that it was not simply that Calvin was a dictator out to suppress anyone who disagreed with him. At this point, it will be beneficial to present a brief sketch of Calvin's situation in Geneva was like at the time of the Servetus' arrival. While there may be profit to laying out a fuller biography to understand Calvin's own thought leading up to the events in 1553, the value would be overshadowed by the length needed and has been capably done by others. The immediate context is of much more value for our purposes here. The most vital aspect to understanding his position in Geneva at the time of the trial is the election of 1552, in which the Libertine Party gained control of the city government. The Libertines were a group that was extremely hostile to Calvin and opposed many of his moral reforms and his views of church discipline, specifically that someone who had been excommunicated from the church should also be barred from receiving communion on the Lord's Day without the prior approval of the Petit Concile, a 25-member ruling body, which, by the way, I'm just going to call the Little Council or the Petit Council. The most notable of the libertines to gain power was Ami Perrin, the principal head of the party at the time of the election. The libertine gained an overwhelming majority in the so-called Petit Council, as well as a notable standing in the General Assembly of 200. This was, by all accounts, a period of great trouble for Calvin, who had major difficulties pastoring under such an antagonistic city government. In fact, we know that in short order, the Little Council gave Calvin such a difficult time that by July of 1553, just before Servetus arrived in Geneva in August, Calvin wrote that he was seriously considering resigning his pastorate due to the severe and almost insufferable tensions placed on him by the council to even perform his duties as a minister. There are two other factors that hindered Calvin's ability to minister freely in Geneva. As I mentioned earlier, Calvin was not a citizen of Geneva at this point. He would not become part of the bourgeois until 1559, six years after the Servetus affair and only five years before his death. This means that he was not able to serve in any official capacity within the city and could not vote in any elections or proceedings for most of his time in Geneva. As far as policies, laws, trials, and other civil proceedings, Calvin could only plead his case, but could not affect any direct change. In addition, at this time, Geneva was under the guardianship of the neighboring city, Bern, due to a treaty signed several decades before. Not only had Bern been unfavorable to Calvin through his time in Geneva, but they had been instrumental in helping the Libertines gain power in the 1552 election and overall endorsed the party's opposition to Calvin. Another important aspect of the life at this point of the Reformation must be kept in mind. Protestants were under substantial persecution around the continent in Catholic-controlled territories. Specifically in neighboring France, French Protestants were heavily oppressed, and many were put to death as heretics by burning at the stake. In addition, Protestants were viewed with suspicion as being soft on heresy, 
Rome thought that they had thrown open the theological gates to any and everyone to come through since they took interpretation out of the hand of the bishops and placed it in the hand of the laity. The fact that the Reformation spawned, or at least paved the way for the Anabaptists, was a detail that loomed large in the minds of many Catholics and Reformers alike. This overall religious milieu will play a major role in our understanding of why Servetus was sentenced the way that he was in Geneva, which we will explore soon. During his time in Paris and Vienna, it is thought that Servetus was developing his theological views that he would later publish early in 1553 with Christianosmi Restutio, the restoration of Christianity, a clear response to Calvin's institution, uh, Institutes of Christianity. We'll now briefly sketch Servetus' major heresies to give a flavor of just why the restitutio caused such a stir around the continent, or, as best as possible given the space is limited and even critics who are disposed towards Servetus admit the work is rather jumbled and unclear. Servetus appears to have developed a kind of pantheistic Sabellianism in which he viewed creation to be eternal and every creature to be, in some way, an incarnation of God, with Christ being a superior and more special example of that incarnation. However, Servetus rejected the divinity of Christ and seemed to have lost none of his disdain for, the, for Trinitarianism over his years in hiding, posing as a Catholic. Whereas before he said that it led to atheism and polytheism, in the Restitutio, Servetus ramped up his scorn for the doctrine of the Trinity by comparing it to the mythical three-headed hellhound Cerberus. He called the doctrine a devilish phantom, a poetic monster, and even an illusion of Satan himself. He then turned his sights on the divinity of Christ and argued that Christ was not eternally begotten of the Father, nor was he divine by nature. Rather, it was by grace that God granted him sanctification, anointing, and exaltation because Jesus the man was perfectly humbled and perfectly humbled himself to God. Because of this, Servetus saw Christ as an example to Christians who, by likewise humbling themselves, could attain moral divinity like Jesus had. This is where Servetus becomes rather hard to follow. Another after insisting that Jesus was a man who was granted godness after humbling himself, he then argues that Christ was neither God nor man, and that his body was not a human body, that after exaltation his flesh was divine, and this was accomplished by the process of, quote-unquote, begetting, the mixing of three primary elements, water, air, and fire, with the final fourth element, earth, coming through the mother. For Servetus, nothing earthly or carnal could come from the father. This manner of spiritual alchemy won no friends among the Reformers or the Catholics, but did make some headway among the Anabaptists, a fact that would not help him during the trial. A point about the publication of the Restitutio may also shed some light on the impending conflict in Geneva. Though Servetus was living in Vienna, in the service of the archbishop there, because of his views that were going to be published directly conflicted with Catholic orthodoxy, he worked with two Protestant printers, Guerriot and Ar sorry, I'm also going to butcher this one, Arnoulet. Now, Arnoulet was an evangelical who was sympathetic toward Calvin. After a short time of publication, he had a falling out with Guerriot because he accused Guerriot of misleading him on the theological context of the book. 
Giro, however, printed in full knowledge of the contents. What makes Giro interesting is that he belonged to the Libertine Party in Geneva and was adamantly hostile to Calvin. This simple fact shows that Servetus was not only aware of the Libertines and their disdain for Calvin, but also that they had strong ties to them. This point will be very relevant shortly as we discuss why Servetus may have been so brazen as to enter Geneva and openly attend a church service where Calvin was preaching, likely thinking that he would have far more political support than he actually received. In 1553, after the publication of the Restitutio, Servetus was arrested in Vienna after his true identity had been revealed to the authorities. He appeared to have suspected Calvin of his arrest and during his trial blamed Calvin for it. This allegation is parroted by many anti-Calvin writers, but it seems wildly implausible for several reasons. First, Calvin denied it, noting that he would not have hatched such a plot with the Catholics in Vienna, who hardly opposed him and were actively burning Protestants. He wrote, quote, it is hardly believable that we, Calvin and Rome, would communicate by way of letters, and that those who get along with me as well as Belial with Jesus Christ would plot with such a deadly enemy as if, were, as if he were a companion, end quote. He continues that he had no problem agreeing that he was the one who identified Servetus in Geneva, and so would have no reason to lie if he had been the one to identify him to the Viennese authorities. Another major problem with this accusation is that Calvin had in his possession nearly two decades of worth of letters from Servetus that espoused many of the same heretical views. He knew that Villanueva was Servetus and had all the documentary evidence to prove it. Had Calvin wanted to simply see Servetus done away with, he could have easily done so years before. In fact, not noting nothing was gained by Calvin uh, by the timing of Servetus's arrest in Vienna. This is telling because the previous year, Calvin had met with Tournon, the Cardinal of Lyon, in order to intercede for five reformed students that had been arrested and held captive there. Servetus would have been an ideal bargaining chip, and he could have killed two birds with one stone, had turning in Servetus been his intention. If we think back to the opportunities that Calvin had to turn Servetus in previously, this also reveals that the quotes from Calvin often used to try and demonstrate his malice towards Servetus are, in fact, simple examples of 16th century polemics and not actual desires of violent intent, as Emerton wrote above, or else it seems plausible that Calvin would have availed himself of the opportunity at the first possible instant years before. What appears to have happened was that the Protestant French refugee and friend of Calvin in Geneva, Guillaume de Trey, was writing to his Catholic cousins, Arnais, who lived in Lyon. Arnais was attempting to convince de Trey to come back to his senses and rejoin the Catholic Church, and was telling him that Lyon's prisons were full of Protestants just waiting to be burned. His point was that the Protestants were troublemakers and criminals who were causing disorder throughout Catholic provinces. In response, de Trey, who had spoken with Calvin and knew of the Servetus-Villanueva connection, ridiculed Viennese Catholic authorities for jailing faithful Christians, while even the archbishop was sheltering one of the most infamous heretics of the century and disclosed that Villanueva was Servetus, the author of the Restitutio, and he sent him a copy of the book. 
Arnais then turned in Villanueva to the authorities, and the local inquisitor decided to simply investigate him before he arrested him. Servetus denied that he was anyone other than Villanueva, and both he and Garreau denied being involved in any way with the printing of the Restitutio. Garreau had hidden everything related to the printing of the book. At this, it appeared that Servetus would get away with his deception again, and Detray was viewed as offering a frivolous and baseless accusation. In order to protect his dignity and honor, Detray pleaded with Calvin to produce the original letters so they could be matched to the handwriting of Villanueva. It should be noted here that the letters to Calvin had been published as an appendix in the back of the Restitutio, so it's not as though it was a secret that Calvin had been in debate with the author of the book. What was yet to be proven was if Villanueva was Servetus who wrote it. Calvin initially, excuse me, initially rejected Detray's request, again showing a lack of some cruel malice against Servetus, and Detray says that Calvin had originally refused because he thought his job was to convince heretics with scripture and reason and not the sword of justice, which he said he did not and should not possess. Calvin believed that the magistrates, not the consistory, should wield the sword. This initial response by Calvin also sheds a very different light on the later events than what is usually presented, as we'll see shortly, as well as his prior comment to Pharrell. However, on continued pressure and due to his friendship with Detray, he finally agreed and sent several of the letters requested. Once the handwriting was matched, this was ironclad evidence of the true identity of Villanueva and the Inquisitor had him arrested on April 4, 1553. It appears that Servetus did not know of the letters that had been sent by Calvin because during his first round of questioning, he swore on the Bible to be Villanueva, denied writing the book, and claimed to be a devout and orthodox Roman Catholic. When faced with the letters, he then concocted a story that he had borrowed the name of a famed heretic Servetus, and then wrote to Calvin over 20 years prior in an attempt to trap Calvin in overt heresy, or if he could convince Calvin that he was wrong. The questioning could not continue, however, because one night, Servetus was able to escape his cell and flee from Vienna. The escape was more convenient than daring, however. Due to his connections with the archbishop and other Viennese, Viennese officials that he had treated as a medical practitioner, the jailer was instructed to be easy on Servetus. Some have speculated that, quote, benevolent negligences, end quote, had been employed to help him escape. After the escape on June 17, 1553, Servetus had, was declared guilty in absentia and was sentenced to be burned at the stake with his books the instant that he could be discovered and arrested again. An effigy of him was burned at the stake as a clear message that should Servetus be found in Vienna again or handed over to them, he would be burned immediately and no new trial would be needed. Servetus planned on traveling to Zurich after his flight from Vienna and then ultimately to Italy where his writing had gained somewhat of a following, and he believed he may have found safe haven there. But a funny thing happened on the way to Italy. On August 13, 1553, Servetus inexplicably attended a service at La Madeline to hear Calvin preach. This would set in motion the events that would lead to the eventual execution and would launch centuries of unwarranted libel against Calvin. 
Next, we'll explore the events surrounding Servetus's arrest, trial, and eventual execution, which is misconstrued to create the revisionist myth of Calvin as Jihad Jean, the complete tyrant who ruled Geneva with an iron fist. Conflict. August 13th through October 27th, 1553. On August 13th, 1553, Servetus attended a public church service at La Madeline, where a largely disenfranchised Calvin was preaching. We must remember that in July 1553, just one month before Servetus arrived in Geneva, we have letters from Calvin. So at his wit's end with dealing with the Petit Council and having been banished before, and with very little say even over the administration of the sacraments in his own church, expressing that he was seriously considering resigning the pastorate and moving away. What we do not have is Calvin as a dictator over Geneva, but as a, rather as a pastor with barely enough authority in the church to keep heretics and those who are excommunicated from taking the Lord's table. Calvin, apparently being told that Servetus was in attendance, promptly informed the authorities and Servetus was arrested. This action by Servetus is one of the most puzzling aspects of the entire affair. Why did Servetus think that he would fare any better in freedom in Geneva than he did in Vienna, especially if he incorrectly thought that Calvin was the man who had turned him in to the authorities in Vienna, as Servetus claimed? We know that Servetus had intended to head towards Zurich, and then ultimately to Italy, where some of his ideas had gained a favorable reception. This would make Geneva a rather unusual and unnecessary detour, rather far out of his way. What seems plausible, considering his connections to Guerreau, was what he expected the assistance from the Libertines, who had been in power in Geneva for some time by then, such as Perrin, Berthyler, and Vandel, who were effecti effectively giving Calvin quite a hard time. Some have wondered if Servetus had possibly been invited by the Libertines, or a subset of them, to try and have Calvin embarrassed and removed from the ministry there. This is conceivable given the fact that the very day of his arrest, a Libertine named Philibert Berthyler immediately signed on as a defense for Servetus. Berthyler had previously been excommunicated by Calvin for repeated immoral behavior and was fighting to get the excommunication overturned when Servetus arrived in Geneva. During the early stages of the trial, the support for the Libertine Party for Servetus appeared so strong that apparently both he and Calvin thought that he would be vindicated. There may even be some pride in going to the city of one of his longest intellectual rivals, who had spurned, spurned him and stopped responding to his letters, and he knew that Calvin was at one of his most challenging times in Geneva. He possibly was even aware that Calvin was considering leaving Geneva himself because it was so hard on him during that time. This would be a chance for Servetus to finally defeat the great reformer Calvin and perhaps embarrass him or even cause him to go into hiding as he had been forced to do for so long. He likely knew that Calvin had been banished before, and with the Libertines now in control of the Petit Council, the time would be right for Servetus to gain a foothold in such a pillar of the reformed areas and finally be free to publicly advance his ideas. Whatever his exact reasons, the miscalculation to come to Geneva would prove fatal. On top of this, Servetus had no reason to think that he would be executed, as he certainly would have been in Catholic or Lutheran-controlled municipalities. 
Up until this time, Geneva had never executed anyone for heresy. In the same uh, year that Servetus had arrived in Geneva, 1553, there had been two previous heresy trials, and both merely resulted in banishment from Geneva. It is likely that Servetus assumed that even if his scheme failed, that the most that would happen would be banishment from Geneva, in which he would simply continue on with his journey to Zurich, and then Italy. What Servetus had not counted on was that the heresies that he, had, that he proposed were so serious that they would be found appalling to degrees never before seen in Geneva, and his apparent undermining of Christian society so serious that even the libertines could not let it abide for long. It is a somewhat shocking thing for many non-Calvinists to discover that Servetus was the first and only heretic executed in Geneva in Calvin's almost 20 years of ministering there. In accordance with the Carolan Code, which guided Genevan law, since Servetus had been arrested, he needed to be charged within 24 hours or else must be released. One would think that Calvin would be the prime person to bring those charges, yet he was not. Naffy notes that overall secular nature of the trial, in that the consistory was com completely sidelined during the entire judicial process. Instead, Nicholas Fontaine was appointed as the lead prosecutor on August 14th and brought official heresy charges against Servetus to the Petite Council and the Lord Lieutenant Pierre Tussaud. Something to note is that Tussaud was replaced by Berthyler just two days later, obviously to, to the relief of Servetus. While the consistory was to remain outside of judicial affairs, since this was a heresy trial, the prosecution would need a theological expert, and Fontaine naturally turned to Calvin. It should also be noted that under Genevan law, the prosecutor must be imprisoned during the initial charging period, such that Fontaine was imprisoned while Calvin was free to access all of his resources and books to prepare the theological case against Servetus and sustain the charge. For this, Calvin produced the so-called 38 Articles, which was merely 38 passages drawn from Servetus's writing, mostly the Restitutio, to serve as theological exhibits against Servetus, reflecting some of his most foul heresy, specifically Servetus's rejection of the Trinity as an imaginary gods and, phant and uh, phantasms and how he labeled Trinitarians as the real atheists. They also included citations to show Servetus's erroneous teaching on Christology, that God is made up of physical parts, that everything is made of God, i.e. a peculiar form of pantheism, his strange views of the human soul, the Holy Spirit, and his rejection of infant baptism. From August 13th to August 14th, the lieutenant questioned Servetus about these statements, which Calvin had provided, and found the initial charge of heresy to have enough merit to proceed to trial the following day. During the questioning, Servetus had attempted to reverse roles, saying that he had merely written to Calvin to correct his errors, when Calvin viciously and voraciously attacked him in writing that Calvin was the one in theological error on several passages, that he demanded a public debate with Calvin, and so forth. This course would have probably been favorable to Calvin, since he had rather easily dispatched previous heretics like Hieronymus and Bolsic. The libertines of the Petit Council seemed to agree that Calvin would have certainly prevailed in a public debate, and so prevented it from taking place. Fontaine, having sustained the merits of the charge, was released from jail. During the first stage of the trial, the case by the prosecution had largely started on theological grounds to sustain the heresy charge. 
However, by August 23rd, in their closing statement, the focus had adeptly shifted to political theory of the trial concerning the impact of the heresy, more specifically stubborn, dogmatic, and subversively articulated heresy like that of Servetus, would have had on Christian society. They argued that Servetus's opinions and his tenacity in defending them against the advisements of nearly every province he had lived in would pose a clear and present danger for Geneva as well, something of interest to the council since the power structure of Geneva was fractured by nearly any account and could not sustain much more upheaval. This shift in Fontaine's rhetorical strategy is likely what initially shifted the success of the case in the long run and began to swing the support of the Libertines and the Petit Council away from Servetus. Essentially, Fontaine took Calvin's view that his public heresy was a means to spiritually murder people by placing their very souls at risk and transformed it to a far more concrete concept of sedition and social subversion where the soul of the city herself was at risk. He moved it out of the realm of abstract theological debate to the realm of real social importance, which even the Libertines sought to protect. To aid with this strategy even further, Fontaine had previously included a member of the Libertine party by the name of Claude Rigaud to his team, and had Rigaud deliver this closing statement. This maneuver had two effects. One, it appeared to split, split the power base of the Libertines, and two, it pushed the personal conflict between Servetus and Calvin to the background of the trial. It would no longer be a show trial between two chief personalities, but would be a trial about the societal harmony and peace of Geneva herself. In his closing statement, Servetus did nothing to help his cause either. In order to play down the idea that he was trying to subvert Genevan social order, he claimed to have never communicated his ideas to anyone in Geneva. This was a known falsehood since anyone was aware of his letters to Calvin and to another minister named Abel Popin. He then claimed that he was not aware of anyone following his ideas and that he was only interested in doing Christendom a favor. This was also recognized by all to be a dishonest since his book was a clear assault on all Orthodox churches and he had been known to correspond with his followers in Italy. He also continued to call Protestant martyrs atheists and their god Cerebus with three heads, which doubtfully won him much sympathy considering that the number of those dying at the stake in Catholic territories was increasing every day. Thus, his attempt to appear innocent and harmless gave the impression instead of being deceptive. At this time, a jailer from the courts of Vienna had been sent to, uh, to Geneva to retrieve Servetus. He was given the option to stay and be judged in Geneva or to return to Vienna. At the mention of returning to Vienna, Servetus fell on his knees and begged to stay in Geneva, a reasonable position considering that he had already been tried in absentia and burned an effigy in Vienna. A return there would mean certain death without trial, whereas a stay in Geneva may have meant exoneration or perchance only banishment. It was during this time that the Libertines and the Petit Council attacked Calvin on a separate ecclesiastical front. On Friday, September 1st, Philibert Berthyler, who had been originally representation for Servetus and now the Lord Lieutenant presiding over the trial, and who had been excommunicated from the Church of St. Pierre for repeated immorality, petitioned Ami Perrin, the head of the Petit Council, to mandate Calvin to allow him to partake of communion again on Sunday, just three days later. Perrin approved of the petition of Berthyler 
if Berthiler felt at peace with his conscience overtaking communion, a move that completely bypassed the authority of the consistory over ecclesiastical matters. At this same meeting, they agreed, despite Calvin's protests, to have the case proceed in written Latin, and to agree to Servetus's petition to seek the decision of the four major surrounding Protestant municipalities on his case. Servetus likely knew of the favorable and lenient outcome of such a request in a recent trial of Jerome Bolsek, and was seeking a similar outcome. Calvin then again protested giving communion to Berthiler, even if it meant his own arrest and death, because he would not willfully profane the Lord's table. Berthiler and Servetus surely saw this as favorable wind, that the petite council was on their side and opposed Calvin. On Saturday, September 2nd, the council convened again and heard Calvin's petitions against giving communion to Berthiler, but upheld their decision from the prior day. What Calvin did not know is that after he left, they weakened their stance and recommended that for the peace of the city, Berthiler should not go through with taking communion. Sunday morning drew upon Calvin, and with the members of the council sitting before him, Calvin preached the following, quote, As to me, while God will have me stay here, since he has given me to constancy, and since I have taken it from him, I shall make use of it, whatever happens, and I shall not govern myself in any other way than according to the rule of my master, which is quite clear and well known. Since we are now are going to receive the supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, if anyone tries to intrude on this table, though he has been defended by the consistory to do so, it is certain that at the cost of my life I will prove to be what I am commanded to be. End quote. Thankfully, Berth Eiler took the recommendation of the council and did not approach the table, so the crisis was avoided. However, by this time, Servetus had completed his responses to Calvin's 38 articles from Servetus's writings. He had been told by the council that he could recant of any teachings that he no longer held to and could then plead his case against anything that he believed Calvin misrepresented him on or was incorrect about. His reply was full of insults such as Simon the sorcerer, liar, you have lied, muddle-headed mind, criminal and murderer accuser, you are a wretch, and so on and so forth. By September 9th, the council had not yet sent their request to the surrounding cities, and Calvin sent the following letter to Bollinger, quote, In a short time, the council will send you to the opinions of Servetus in order to get your advice about them. It is in spite of us that they cause you this trouble. But they have come to such a point of madness and fury that they hold suspicious anything that we say. Thus, if I were to claim that there is a daylight at noon, they would immediately start doubting my words. End quote. What is so interesting about this statement is that it peels back the layers of conflict between Calvin and the consistory on the one hand and the libertines and the petite council on the other. It clearly calls into question any reading of the event that casts Calvin as the unopposed dictator of Geneva. The outcome of the trial, and indeed even the course of the trial, was completely out of his control and, in many ways, ran how it did despite anything that Calvin said or wrote. Part of what may help to perpetuate this myth of Calvin being the brutal despot punishing Servetus may be Servetus's own misreadings of the situation himself. The couriers would not be dispatched to Geneva from Bern, to Bern, Zurich, Basel, and Schaffhaus until September 21st, and were sent to both civil and ecclesiastical authorities. This means that Servetus languished in jail for quite some time with no response from the other cities. In his response to the council on September 15th, he wrote, quote, 
You can see that Calvin has run out of ideas, not knowing what to say, and just for his pleasure, he wants me to rot away in jail. The lice eat me alive. My, my chasses are torn, and I have no per, uh, per point uh, nor shirt to change except a bad one, end quote. He rails against Calvin as a sole party responsible for the miserable conditions of the cell he suffered in. This has been passed on by anti-Calvinists. The problem with this protestation is that Calvin had no say or control over the jail or its conditions. We know from council records that it was the syndic of Geneva who made those de determinations, and during this time, the person holding that post was Ami Perrin himself, a libertine opposed to Calvin. The council was moved by his pleas and agreed to give him clothes and uh, had clothes made for him. However, to add to Servetus's delusion to be sure, they forgot to commission anyone to make the garments, and so Servetus continued in his dismal condition for some time longer. Many of the anti-Calvinists likely have read the words of Servetus and simply taken them at face value, also blaming Calvin for his supposed cruel treatment of Servetus, and simply ignored the delusion of the situation under which he suffered. In a letter to the council on September 22nd, he continued demanding the lex talionis be applied to Calvin, should he be found innocent. He demanded that Calvin be, quote, a detained prisoner like me until the case is settled by the death of me or him or any other penalty. And for so doing, I put myself down for the lex talionis against him and will be content to die if he is not found guilty of this, as well as other things I will charge him with. I beg for justice, my lords, justice, justice, justice. That is why, as the sorcerer that he is, he must not only be condemned, but also exterminated and chased away from your city. And his possessions must be attributed to me and as a compensation for the possessions that he made me lose." End quote. Ironically, in this same letter, Servetus conceded that if he was to be found guilty, that he would be deserving of the death penalty. He writes, quote, and I am willing to die if he is not proven guilty, end quote. He agreed that death was the valid punishment under Piona Talionis, so long as it was the magistrates and not the ministers who handled the proceedings of the, and the punishments. Here, Servetus and Calvin were likely in agreement on their Constantinian views. Mueller notes, quote, the two separate spheres, church and state, are widely separated, yet because they both have their origin in God and both serve the purpose of God, they ought to be related to one another, end quote. Those, like Flowers, who claimed that it was Calvin's theological determinism that made him so brutally treat heretics and condemn Servetus to death, not only is utterly ignorant of Calvin's theology and the history of these matters, but also ignore that it was the Anabaptist Servetus who equally demanded the death penalty, and not just for heresy, but for charging him with heresy. This ir the irony of this seems lost on anti-Calvinists at exactly the point where it becomes relevant. It was during this time that an anecdote concerning a cross-examination of Servetus by Calvin occurred, which helps to expose the kind of interactions between Calvin and Servetus in the courtroom. In order to expose the extreme form of pantheism propounded and ardently defended by Servetus, Calvin set him up by asking him about his views of nature of all creation. Servetus responded that since all things were created by God, that all things have attributes of God and thus are part of God. Calvin then shuffled, jumped up and down, and stomped on the floor and asked Servetus if the majesty of God is subjected to such unworthy usage. 
Servetus triumphantly declared that he had no doubt that the table, the bench, the chair, and anything Calvin could point to were all of the substance of God, to which Calvin asked if the devil himself is of the substance of God. Servetus reportedly smiled and replied, Do you doubt it? For my part, I hold it as a general proposition that all things whatsoever are part and parcel of God and that nature at large is his substantial manifestation, end quote. The heretical genie was out of the bottle at this point and would be nearly impossible for Servetus to put back in place. He had publicly declared with a smile that the devil himself is a manifestation of God. On October 10th, in failing health, Servetus pled with the council one more time for clothes and the prior oversight was corrected and clothes were made and brought to him. It was also during this time that the opinions of the surrounding Protestant cities began to arrive in Geneva. It must be kept in mind that all around the continent, Protestants were being mocked, persecuted, and condemned as being soft on theology and permissive of Anabaptists. The reputation of being soft on sin and heresy as well as allowing downright anarchy in light of the Munster Rebellion was still a fresh wound on the minds of the Protestant authorities at the time. The first response to arrive was Bollinger's from Zurich. He stated that it would be necessary to deal severely and swiftly with Servetus, and called for the death of Servetus, though left the means up to the Genevan Council. On October 6th, Schaffhaus replied and agreed with the estimation of Bollinger. Bairn, which had been generally opposed to Calvin in the past, responded via Minister Holler, quote, But what need is there to speak? This man is absolutely heretical, and the church must be delivered from him. End quote. In a letter to Bollinger on October 19th, Holler wrote, quote, Our response completely agrees with yours. When they heard the errors of Servetus, all the members of the council shuddered, and I do not doubt that had he been detained in their prison, they would have sent him to the stake. End quote. Basil, too, agreed that Servetus was demonstrably one of the worst heretics in living memory and called for his execution. The decisions of these churches held up prior statements by men like Bucer, who wrote, quote, Servetus deserves to be torn to pieces after having his entrails ripped out, end quote. And Zwingli, who wrote that the persistence of Servetus, quote, would upset all our Christian religion, end quote. The ministers of Zurich, aware of the tensions between Protestants and Rome, wrote, quote, we think in this case you ought to manifest much faith and zeal, inasmuch as our churches have abroad the bad reputation of being heretical and of being particularly favorable to heresy. O holy providence at this time affords you an opportunity of freeing yourself and us from that injurious suspicion. If you know how to be vigilant and active in preventing the further spread of that poison, and we have no doubt but that your seniors will do so." End quote. One can only imagine that Servetus regretted being so bold as to demand the council seek the decisions of the other Protestant municipalities around them, for this had now placed them in an obvious bind. They had sought the decision of the other cities, and if they did not dismiss their attempt to humiliate Calvin, they would humiliate themselves as being sympathetic on heresy and boarding, even supporting, one of the most contemptible heretics in Christendom. They even had Servetus demanding that this case should be a capital case. He merely thought it would be Calvin that would fall under the Lex Talionis instead of him. The power that the council had exerted over Calvin during the conflict of, uh, uh, concerning communion shows that they could have spared Servetus had they desired to. 
They had the power and authority to do so, even in ecclesiastical trials such as a heresy trial was. Servetus went from being a whip with which they sought to scourge Calvin to a scapegoat used to escape appearing weak on heresy. Servetus went from being a merely a heretic to a political tool. On October 26, before the Petit Council, Perrin made one last attempt in favor of Servetus and asked the matter to go before the Council of 200 before arriving at a verdict. His request was denied, and Servetus was unanimously found guilty and condemned to death. He would be taken to Champel the next day and burned alive with his books. Apparently, Calvin had quickly petitioned to change that mode of execution to one more humane and swift. He had previously written to Bollinger that though he thought Servetus should die, it should be done in temperance and moderation, not with the fiery fury of Rome, no doubt a reference to the horrors of being tortured and burned alive at the stake, which many Protestant martyrs were suffering at the time and for whom Calvin continually intervened and petitioned for their release. This is an urban legend among anti-Calvinists, Sorry, there is an urban legend among anti-Calvinists that Calvin not only orchestrated the whole trial and execution, but also that he called for wet green wood to be used for the fire to make it burn cooler and slower, thus prolonging Servetus's suffering. This is simply a gross fabrication meant to malign the character of Calvin. Calvin wrote to Pharrell on the day of the sentencing, tomorrow, quote, tomorrow, Servetus will be executed. We endeavored to change the mode of execution, but in vain. End quote. This is not surprising given that Calvin was opposed by the vast majority of the council. This also undermines the narrative of Calvin being the unopposed despot of Geneva. He could not even alter the mode of execution to be more humane, so why would anyone think he had enough authority to be a shadow power controlling the whole entire council, which had opposed him at every turn and drove him to considering retirement and leaving Geneva? The night before the execution, Pharrell and Calvin went to minister Sir Servetus in prison. Servetus asked for mercy from Calvin, apparently still thinking Calvin was in charge of it all. Calvin stated that he never had any real feelings of hatred towards Servetus the man, only his heresy, and pled with him to recant, beg for mercy from God, for he was the one whom Servetus had blasphemed. Calvin stayed a long while praying for Servetus, begging him to repent and be saved, but to no avail. He finally left, feeling he had done all he could do. At approximately 11 a.m. the following morning, Servetus was led to the site of the execution and read a long death sentence that recounted all of his errors. When the pronouncement of the death by fire was read, he wept and shouted that if he had erred, it was by mistake, as he was only teaching what he thought the scriptures taught. He begged the mode of execution to be assuaged, it is unclear if he knew that Calvin had already requested this on his behalf, but to no avail. By 1 p.m., everything was over. Servetus died without renouncing his theological convictions. One thing that marked Servetus' behavior during the trial was a very arrogant and downright hostile attitude towards Calvin. Whereas in Vienna, he was marked, moderate, humble, and willing to make concessions to his opponents to spare his life, in Geneva, he made no concessions and seemed at times to stubbornly refuse to do so. It is possible that it was just brute pride that would not allow him to commit any retractions in the presence of his arch opponent. Some have wondered if his trust in the libertines had given him an unwarranted confidence to act as if he had already had the upper hand. Calvin himself wrote that had Servetus been able to make concessions and show a teachable spirit, he likely would have spared his life at the hands of the council. 
while throughout his life he had shown cowardice and recanted his views for self-preservation, it was in Geneva, likely believing the libertines would be his liberators, that he held to his convictions to the very end. In comparison to the view that, quote, Calvin was a furious tyrant thirsting for the blood of his opponents, end quote, Ephraim Emerson of Harvard University writes, quote, a calmer judgment, however, shows us that seldom, if ever, was a trial for opinions conducted with larger guarantees of fairness, more openly, or more in accordance with the principles which the soundest leaders of thought at the time would approve, end quote. Conclusion. Contrary to the claims of the anti-Calvinists, Servetus was the first and last heretic executed in Geneva during Calvin's tenure there. For those who attempt to see Calvin as a tyrant, a despot, a dictator, out, of, out to suppress any who disagreed with him with a thirst for a bloody vengeance, this episode should heavily moderate that view. Calvin was indeed a man of his times, and while we have thankfully progressed beyond that, we should not hold Calvin singularly guilty or at fault for the prevailing cultural, civil, and ecclesiastical beliefs that permeated Christendom of the 16th century. We must remember that nearly all churchmen, councils, magistrates, and civilians believed that headstrong heretics ought to be capitally punished. It did not matter if they were theological determinists, dyed-in-the-wool proponents of Molinism, advocates of absolute libertarian freedom of the will, Reformed, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Anabaptistic, English, German, French, Italian, Swiss, or whatever. The overwhelmingly dominant view, nearly universally held at the time with almost no exceptions, was Constantinian, that the state was to protect the purity and orthodoxy of the church for the good of Christendom and for the benefit of the souls of its people. They believed that the death of one man already bound for hell was just if it spared countless other souls from being eternally lost to hell as well. As we saw, Servetus himself believed this and called for it. While he called for tolerance in some doctrinal matters, he called for the death penalty for Calvin's views and even for himself if found guilty of the heresy he was accused of. Those, like Nicholas Zirkenden, who generally would be viewed as a progressive in favor of religious toleration of the time, believe that Servetus ought to be excluded from the toleration because he was too far off the reservation and a danger to the peace of Christendom. One could ask where the voices of moderation were calling for toleration against Servetus during the trial. In fact, during this period, such a view was so novel and so marginal that it's hard to imagine it played a part in any trial anywhere on the continent during a heresy trial during that time period, and would only arise after, sometimes long after, depending on the region, the deaths of Servetus and Calvin. The Protestants were still in the process of redefining themselves in contrast to Rome. And just as the Protestant problem colored the way Rome handled events like the Galileo affair, which smacked of personal interpretation against priestly interpretation, posing a threat to Rome's ecclesiastical authority around the country and the continent, so too the Roman problem of how they handled Protestant quote-unquote heretics colored the way that Geneva and the surrounding territories viewed the Servetus affair. This was a matter of world geopolitics across Christendom impacting a singular event. As R. Scott Clark remarks, quote, Calvin was a 16th century man and a Constantinian, but so was most everyone else in the period. 
the real argument here cannot reasonably be over Calvin, Calvin's influence over civil affairs, or else the entire magisterial reformation must be convicted. Where's the moral outrage over Bucer, Melanchthon, Luther, Zwingli, Bullinger, et al.? End quote. A good question indeed. As we have seen, not only are the caricatures of Calvin's involvement in the trial so mistaken, but the typical anti-Calvinistic telling of the event so biased, so myopic, so ill-informed, that it beggars belief that anyone should accept it who is not already committed to demeaning Calvinists. Thankfully, history is not silent on this, and the truth can easily be found. And thankfully, as always, attacks on a man can never, never serve as reasonable assaults on a theological system. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out to me by email at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog, freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or visit the Freed Thinker uh, group page on Facebook. Thank you again for joining me, and, and come back soon as we discuss more interesting content. Good night, and God bless.